0: Now this is the part of my sermon where i tell you things you already know but you need to be reminded of them so just humor me for this moment the bible is a complicated book now the reason why i say that to you is because there are many who say that the bible is simple that it is straightforward that it is plain and easy to understand now on one hand i know what people mean when they say that that the Bible is plain and easy to understand, and in some ways, they're probably right. But I believe that while there are moments in the Bible that are plain and easy to understand, overall, it is a book that goes beyond the simple and easily explainable. It is complex, and it means different things at different times, even to you. There are things in the Bible that you learned as a child That means something different to you now, because you have grown up and put on your big boy or big girl pants, so it means something different, and it constantly challenges our understanding of ourselves and the world that we live in. And I've told you this several times before, but we could open up a passage here together this morning, read it together, and we would not all agree on what the main meaning of that passage is. Well, how is that possible if it's so plain and simple? Aren't we all friends? Don't we all get along? How is it that we could see things a different way? Some of the stories in the Bible are funny. Some are sad. Some are shocking. And there's something we don't often consider, and that is that we have accepted things as part of the story that on face value are very problematic to people. We've accepted them because we have heard them. We've talked about them. You've listened to sermons and had classes about them. And so we understand on some level how we think this fits into the whole. But not everyone has the benefit of your experience. Not everyone has the benefit of the things that you have heard. And the Bible runs the gamut of the human experience, laying everything, the good and the bad, shockingly bare. The relationship that God has with his creation is a difficult one, and the path that that relation travels is anything but straight and easy. I don't know if you pay any attention to, you know, all the stuff that's happening in the world, but there are books being banned all over the country. And in some areas, in response to books being banned, they have suggested that the Bible needs to be banned. Not because it's a religious book, but because of what's in it. And I got to tell you, they are not totally wrong about some of the things that are in the Bible. They're not. There are a lot, if we were to sit down with a friend who maybe has had time to peruse their Bible, there are a lot of stories they could bring up to us that would make us start to squirm a little bit in our seats. How do I answer a question about a brother raping his sister? How do I answer a question about people killing other people in mass? What am I supposed to do with these different things? It's important for us to acknowledge that these things exist this morning because today we are looking at a very complicated passage. And it's a story that stirs up different feelings inside of us, and it should. But it's a story that has led some to question who God really is. And if the God they see in this story is consistent with the God that other people tell them about. It's a story that is equal parts exciting and devastating. It is about faithfulness and liberation, while it is also about death, sacrifice, and sorrow. And all of this exists in one very complicated space. One very complicated space. And we, as followers of God, Do not do the story or others' questions a service by glossing over the complexity of what happens. We must embrace the story and see it for what it is. If we want people to know know the God who not only did this one thing, but did a lot more than just that. You know, you can take any story out of context and make it sound like something that maybe it wasn't supposed to be. But sometimes there are stories when people hear the context, the context doesn't help, right? And and that's just true. And maybe this is one of those moments. Now the Exodus story in and of itself uh, has taken us through many incredible different things. The people of God were slaves in Egypt for generations. They were treated harshly and brutally by their masters. From their misery, they cried out to God, and God heard them. He chose the most unlikely of representatives to go before Pharaoh and demand that the people of God be freed. Pharaoh, as can only be expected of a king of his stature, refused to bend to the God that he did not believe existed and had never really heard of before. And in response to that, God showed sign after sign of who he is and what kind of power he had. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. It was hard through all nine plagues. As his people suffered, as he suffered, as the land suffered, he refused to relent. Which leads us to the tenth plague. The liberation of God's people at unimaginable cost. The liberation of God's people at unimaginable cost. Everybody ready? (laughs) Let's get them, right? (laughs) Let's start in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 11. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at our handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the the Israelites go out of his country. Okay. The conversation between Pharaoh and Moses that we are seeing here had completely broken down at the end of the previous plague, which was the plague of darkness. Not that the conversation was ever really all that fruitful in the first place. The plague of darkness had just let up and Pharaoh was again unrelenting. And he looks down at Moses and he tells Moses, you better not come back here again. Because if you do, I will kill you. Is is Pharaoh capable of that? Certainly. He just has to point in the right way and Moses would be dead. So what we see here in chapter 11 is a continuation of that encounter. Moses did not leave and come back again because coming back again would not have been good for Moses' health. So, Verses 1 through 4, they function as sort of a narrative interlude between those two uh, conversations consisting of a private word from God to Moses. And this is used by the narrator to help us understand uh, the whole situation again to make sure that we're not confused about what is going on. There was still one more plague to come, and though Pharaoh may feel like he is done with the whole thing and ready to stop this nonsense, in his mind, God was not finished with him because he had still not relented. He had still not let the people of God go. So before Moses left Pharaoh, he let Pharaoh know what was coming. And what was coming was awful. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. It does not matter what your station is. All of Egypt will experience this tragedy. And the loss will be overwhelming. It will be so overwhelming that throughout Egypt, you will hear the devastated cries of people discovering their children dead. And your own people, Pharaoh, will come to me, Moses, and tell us to get out, that it's time for us to leave. Now, <clears throat> how, how do we look at this, and how do we envision this happening in our mind? What are we supposed to understand goes on? Um, today, we're just looking at the story of the plague itself. Next week, we'll look at everything that comes with the Passover for the Jewish people. But how are we supposed to understand this? How did this happen? How did it go down? And we know from having read the story before, most of us, that the way people were saved was they put the blood of the lamb on the doors of their homes. And when the angel passed, came their way, it would pass over their house. Egypt didn't get those instructions because they were not the people of God. So the term that is used for plague within this section in chapter 11, verse 1, it's not used anywhere else in Exodus. So this is a different plague, kind of plague, than any other plague that has come. This word is most often used... um, in places like Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, where it is translated in that place as disease. There is a disease that will come on everyone. Uh, There are a lot of other words which help us to understand that in that passage, but it's not like God goes house by house somehow doing whatever he does to the baby. It's like there is a disease that moves rapidly through every Egyptian house that affects the firstborn son. And that's how we are meant to think about this moment, that the disease spreads throughout Egypt. Now, what's interesting for us from parts of this story is the attitude of the Egyptian people toward Moses and the Hebrew people that lived around them. We've been talking the last several weeks about what must the people be feeling. You know, what must their understanding of this situation be since they're not privy to the conversation that Moses and Pharaoh are having. And we find something interesting here in chapter 11. They are favorable to the Hebrew people. In fact, they respect Moses and think he's a good dude. Well, that's weird. We haven't had any indication throughout the story that that this is the case. But it is the case. They are favorably, favorably disposed toward the people, and they respected Moses. And how did this happen? How did they reach this conclusion? Well, God made it happen. Whereas Pharaoh's heart was hardened by all the events he was seeing and experiencing, what was happening to the hearts of the Egyptian people? their hearts were softened. Exactly. It was the opposite of what was happening to Pharaoh. Now, this is our, not our first troubling question, because I've always raised a bunch of troubling questions, but it does raise something that we need to think about, which is, if God softened other hearts, then why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? Couldn't he have softened Pharaoh's heart just like he softened the people of Israel? More on this later. The important thing to recognize is that this effectively means that Pharaoh was alone in what he believed should happen. He was the only one. It was his stubbornness that brought Egypt to this point. In fact, his own servants will abandon him and do what? Bow before Moses. They will leave their king, whom they bow before, and they will bow before Moses. And everyone seems to see what is going on in this scenario, and everyone seems to see where this is heading, and everyone is making decisions. You know, maybe these people aren't so bad. Moses seems like he knows what he's doing. They come to these conclusions, and it makes me wonder If it had not been for Pharaoh, how long would this have actually gone on? We don't know. We don't have that answer. Because whether it's everyone against Pharaoh or not, Pharaoh is the one who holds the power to change the situation. And he is the only one that holds the power to change the situation. Which there is something, church, convicting there about one hard heart holding back a bunch of soft ones. Isn't there? If I were a preacher, that would preach. So could the story have been different? Well, the clear answer as far as God is concerned is yes, that it is the hard heart of Pharaoh that takes this story to this place. And again, after the death of the firstborn sons, there will be a great cry unique in Egypt's history. But here's something else that's interesting. This is not the only time that the word for cry out is used in the Exodus story. That same word is used in another place. Can you guess where? It's from Exodus chapter three, verses seven through 10. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." So something for us to consider, because we've heard that passage before, we've studied that passage before, but the cry in Egypt at the discovery of the dead firstborn children was equal to the cry of the Israelites who were drowning in their suffering and misery. They are the same kind of cry. And God heard the cries of his people and responded to that. Now, Moses tells him that in response to all of this, Pharaoh's own people are going to tell the Hebrew people to leave. But notice it's not like a get out of here. It's like a, more like a, you know what, you, need, you guys need to go. <laughs> you know, it's not a forceful pushing it's a, you need to go, and because they have been made favorable to the Hebrew people, the Hebrew people will ask them for their silver and their gold, and they will give it to them. Does this mean you're leaving? Good. Here you go. Go ahead. And after he had declared all these things to Pharaoh, what did Moses do? He left angry. He was ticked off. Why? Why? This is important in this entire narrative, this one moment. Why is he angry? It didn't have to come to this. Didn't have to. And one thing that maybe we haven't considered throughout these stories is how frustrated Moses must have been to see Egypt, the land he grew up in, suffer over and over, and over again, knowing that Pharaoh could stop this at any moment he wanted to. And repeatedly going before this one man and hearing him say no. Your people are covered in boils. No. All your animals are dying. No. You're in darkness that is so thick for three days you can't move. No. It's something that had to have eaten at Moses' heart. And Moses is not at all happy or feeling victorious about this move. He's angry that it's come to this. But it's not God's fault that it has come to this. Moses has seen more clearly than anyone the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And he knows that it did not have to happen this way. Pharaoh could have stopped Moses on his way out of the room. And Pharaoh has to know at this point, he has to know that if Moses says, the firstborn children are going to die, then what's going to happen? They are going to die. And Pharaoh says, get out of here, and next time I see you, I'll kill you. We're given another brief interlude where God spoke to Moses, and those words remind us of what God said all the way back at the beginning of this story. You will go before Pharaoh, and he will reject you so that my wonders can be seen throughout the nation. You will perform these wonders, and he will not relent. It's to remind us before we jump into the action of this chapter that God did not decide just to get here. God didn't start here. It is the actions of Pharaoh that brought them to this place. Now again, at this point, uh, there is a break in the narrative which we will cover next week because the first part of chapter 12 starts to talk about everything that the Hebrew people do um, to get ready to go. And the Passover is a huge people-defining moment For the people of God, it is still celebrated today as a moment of great salvation for the people of God. And there's a lot in that section, but we're going to pick it up next week. So let's move forward to the night of the Passover. So turn over to Exodus 12, and we're going to start in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. That is a haunting verse. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also, bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs, wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Okay, as no surprise to us, everything that God said would happen, happened. Just like God said, it would happen. But there are some things that we need to know. First thing, is this a one-to-one payback for what was done to the Hebrew children by Pharaoh? The answer is no. This was not a one-to-one payback because of what Pharaoh did to the Hebrew children. And the story does not say this. There is no reference back to what Pharaoh had done to the children of the Hebrew people. But it is tempting to read it that way. Well, after all, you did this to us. There are some fundamental differences which make, which make a difference in, in how we view these things because what happens here is similar to but very different to what happened to the Hebrew children. Do you remember... That this was a time around the birth of Moses that Pharaoh had ordered that how many, which babies would be killed? All the male babies. And who was in charge of doing that? Anyone. You see a baby on the street, kill it. Throw it in the Nile. You see a baby, you know, somewhere else, you take care of it, you throw it in the Nile. It was a horrific scenario where you could not leave your house with your child for danger of someone taking that child and murdering it in front of you. How does the Passover happen? It happens at night when everyone is asleep and they wake up to find their children dead. Now look, are the children still dead? Yes, it is still awful but God does not make a show of it. Does that make a difference? In some ways, yes, but the outcome is still it's still hard to deal with. As hard as it is to say the victims in this were primarily children and it doesn't help to say that there was no suffering to use modern a modern kind of image, it's like, you know, Infant death syndrome, sudden infant death syndrome struck everybody's house all at once. Now, the text does not back up, however, from identifying the subject of this judgment. God God took this action in all the firstborn in Egypt from the least to the greatest, both animals and humans. And again, it's like this disease that goes throughout the people. And after that happened, the Hebrew people were urged to leave and they plundered the Egyptians by asking for their valuables and the Egyptians gave the valuables to them. Now I wanna pause here for a moment and reflect on the state of Egypt at this point in time. And here's the question, after all of this is said and done, what do they have left? They have the homes they live in. But over this time, Egypt has been turned into a wasteland where everything that was growing was dead, where most of their livestock is dead, where they have experienced you know, sores and animals that came in and, and, remember, from the locusts, ate every green thing in Egypt. And then when they leave, they take all of their personal valuables of silver and gold it is maybe even an understatement to say that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians because it happened, but it is the most passive plundering by one people of another that you will ever see. Hey, it's time for you to go. Great, can I have your stuff? You betcha. But still go, okay? Yeah, no problem. We're on our way. The people had really suffered, suffered greatly physically, and there wasn't much left for them. And when the narrative tells us, again, that they were plundered, it's almost like Egypt had gone through a terrible, terrible war and loss. That's what the land is left like. Okay, so what do we do with this story? Well, why don't we just turn to the next chapter? That's easier than talking about it is just to go to the next one, right? We cannot get confused about what kind of story this is. There are some things we need to know. Number one, this is not told as a joyful and victorious story. The tone of it is not joyful or victorious, even though it is a moment that we have been waiting for when the people of God are set free. There is no gloating. There is no saying, see, I told you. There is none of that. It's not that kind of story. It is a story, however, of God acting on behalf of his people against their enemies. And God acted decisively and forcefully, but he does not gloat about it. He does not take joy in this moment, and there is no indication that God was looking forward to this. Let's ask the questions, though, that need to be asked, because they are asked by people who struggle with this story. And by listening to some of these questions it reminds us of how difficult some things are that we've just come to accept. How can the killing of children be the action of a loving God? What did they do to deserve this? This is a question that is often asked of these type of events in the Bible when the Hebrew people finally enter the promised land and they kill women and children and animals. There are moments like this throughout, and the question is always the same. How is some sort of genocide the action of a loving God? This question is hard to discuss, right? And it's hard to discuss for a lot of reasons, but one of the primary ones is that on the surface, when it's presented to people in this, to us in this way, on the surface, it seems to be a very simple and straightforward question. Would a God who loves kill children? It's boiling it down to that essence. And if you take it at face value and you say this is the essence of what's going on, then the answer has to be what? No. This is not the action of a loving God. So see, I told you, he's not who you say he is. Now look, this question needs to be treated like a serious question. We can't just shrug it off if we want people to take us seriously and furthermore, if we want them to listen to anything we have to say about God. We cannot skip over all the bumps and bruises because guess what? The bumps and bruises are still there even if we skip over them. The answer to the question is, whether someone likes it or not, is complicated. God is a loving God. And God took no joy in the loss of life. So then maybe the question is, well, did God have a reason to act the way that he did? Our answer is yes. Yes, there is a reason why He acted the way that he did. And we cannot forget, at its most basic, the Exodus story is a story about an enslaved people ruthlessly treated by their masters and the God who moved to set them free. The story, this book is called the Exodus. It's not called the book of the death of the Egyptian firstborn, because that's not the story. The story is about an oppressed people whose cries to God were the same as those who discovered the loss of their children. This is not a story about how God loves the whole world. Remember, we're not all that far into the Bible. We're only in the second book. And the first part of the first book tells us how over and over again God tries to love the world, and the world refuses to love him back. God's efforts at the beginning of the Bible story to love the world are not fruitful for him. God in this story is not acting on behalf of the whole world. He is acting on behalf of his chosen and oppressed people. So, would he have been a better God if he ignored their cries and did not work or move to deliver them. Because the story is about God's chosen people, which is a whole nother bag of issues for some. But they're chosen not so much because God didn't want to choose anyone else. They were chosen because no one else would choose him. And therefore, in this story, it is God's people against an enemy nation. It is the real God against fake gods. Now, did God drive it to this point with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? The answer is no. I know what it says. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart which makes it sound like God ultimately forced these moves, right? And we've talked about this a few times. But again, looking at the condition of Pharaoh's heart tells us more about this story. So let me just point this out to you one more time. Can you bring the slide up, Jed? Thank you. So this is the list of all of the plagues. Now, as we talked about last week, the first five, Pharaoh's heart was hard or unyielding on his own, right? When it comes to the plague of boils, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, here's what's interesting. On the next plague, Pharaoh, if we're reading it straight, like God is making him do something, well, on the next plague, Pharaoh has his chance to change his course. And what does he do? His heart is hard of who's doing Of his own which tells us something important was it god who was making pharaoh's heart hard no it wasn't his heart was hard god wasn't creating some sort of barrier in pharaoh's heart that was making him who he is you see this is who pharaoh was he has shown himself who he was And even if you want to argue, again, that God made this happen, well, Pharaoh shows again that, no, it's his own hard heart that is making this happen. Locusts, darkness, firstborn, all his heart is hardened by God in all of those. But again, he lets the Hebrew people go, and it does not say his heart is softened. In fact, if you thought that Pharaoh was a little slimy before, How slimy is it that he goes to Moses and Aaron and he has just discovered dead children. He goes to Moses and Aaron and he says, go, leave, go worship your God and bless me. Are you serious right now? Bless you? You haven't even sneezed, dude. I have no grounds on which to bless you you have driven your people into the ground and somehow you want god to bless you it is very clearly throughout the story pharaoh who pushes the action and it is not god pharaoh is portrayed as stubborn prideful inflexible leader who uses whatever he can to his own advantage and he puts his own needs over and over again ahead of the suffering and pain of his people He's not hurting the Hebrew people throughout these plagues. They're fine. He's hurting his own people. He is not a good and benevolent leader whose heart God has twisted so that all these bad things would happen. Instead, ultimately, when you stand back and look at the story, Pharaoh stands in direct opposition to God, not just because he, God is real and Pharaoh is not, but what did God do at the beginning of the story that started all this happening? He heard what? The cries of his people, and he acted to deliver them. And by the time we get to the end of this story, Pharaoh has not heard a single cry. Even though the entire nation is mourning at once, And he does not act to protect his people at any time during this scenario. Not once. So, who is the one who is at fault? If we want to blame someone in this, who is the one? And it's clear by the end that even his people recognize God and the Hebrew people, but Pharaoh will not, does not which takes us again back to the kind of story this is. It's not a story about murder, even though that happens. It is a story about deliverance. It is a story about how God stands up for his people against injustice. It is a story about how God brings victory over those who oppose him. Forces like for us, the evil one and death itself. And this story is celebrated by those who were set free from slavery that was instituted by the world against them. And a God, the God who heard their cries. And to the oppressor who doesn't want this God, this move is awful. But to those who are in slavery and want to be set free, the move is on their behalf. So in closing this morning, it reminds us of one very important thing. Salvation comes at a cost, you see. It's never free. Never has been free. There's a song that says it this way about the cross. It is the place where joy and sorrow meet. There is great joy in the deliverance that we have through Jesus. Amen? And there is great sorrow that he had to go to the length he did in order to save us. Just as there is great joy in the liberation of God's people, and great sorrow at what it cost for it to happen. There is great joy in knowing that we are set free from sin, death, and our own failure, that we are saved, and that the things that used to control us have no power over us anymore. And there is tremendous sorrow in knowing that it costs the life of God's Son to get us here. But in the end, we know that more than anything else, God is... He is a redeemer. He takes the things that are broken, that are hurt, that are not what he wants them to be, and he changes them so that an emblem that symbolized death becomes an emblem of our victory, the very opposite of what it was before. How is that possible? How is it possible? It's only possible through a God who loves his people so deeply that he will go as far as it takes to set them free. He will go as far as it takes to set them free.